is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Friday, April 7, 2023, and today will be better than yesterday. Sarah Abbott is working from Florida. Taylor Schwink is working from the Schwink Studios just outside of Bristol, Connecticut. I'm Buster Only, working from my home in Montana. Taylor, I thought I'd take a moment here. My my sound has been a little funky this week. Uh, mm-hmm. I, well, my microphone's been a little funky this week because my computer fried at the end of last week, and so we've sort of been scrambling a little bit this week. Yes, yes, and uh, you know we had someone note like, "Hey, you know, love the show, very, very respectful tweet," but like the Mon- the Wednesday games they happen during the day. Can you try and get the podcast earlier out earlier? That was mostly due to a technical snafu. Um, you know, working with a new platform, the microphone thing. Buster has a microphone on the way to his house right now, so. Um, we have some exciting developments, and hopefully the podcast sounds better generally. So, um, you know, we're trending in the right direction, but a little hiccups, uh, a couple of hiccups here as we start the season. Yeah, it, you know, it's like a hitter going through an early season slump. Me with getting my computer fried. I actually spilled water on my <laughs> laptop uh, in the visitor's dugout in Tampa. The Tigers were there that day, so I'm blaming them. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> no, it's totally my fault. All right. Braves and Padres played a great game on Thursday. This is how it ended. 2-2 pitch. And there's a bullet out to center field. Down for a base hit. Here comes Eddie. Here comes the throw. Play at the plate. Braves win it! A walk-off base hit for Orlando Arcia. And the Braves take game one over the Padres. 680, the fan with that sound. Yeah, this is a great series that'll be punctuated with Sunday Night Baseball, Padres against the Braves, seven ten Eastern on Sunday night. One of the questions I have for Carl Ravitch coming up uh, as we look forward to that game on Sunday is, how many future Hall of Famers are in this series? It's probably more than any of us realize. Yesterday, Dodgers, Diamondbacks, uh, Dustin May was terrific, and Freddie Freeman applied the coup de grace in the top of the seventh inning. And Freddie launches one to left center field. This ball's deep. Back to the wall. Gone. A home run. Freddie Freeman, his first home run of the season, makes it 5-1 Dodgers. An opposite field home run for Freddie Freeman. Tim Neverett, AM570 LA Sports. The Dodgers just keep rolling. You know, we all doubted them coming into the season, whether or not they could hang on to win the National League West, and they are off to a great start. I'm going to ask Carl about that as well. The Rockies, the Nationals, you figure a day game, opener in Colorado, a lot of runs. No, that was not the case. Ray delivers, and Chris lines it towards left center field. It's going to drop for a hit. They wave Tovar up with the ball call. His throw is offline, and the Rockies are on the board. Chris Bryant delivers an RBI single. one nothing Rockies. That was it. One nothing was the final score of that sound from 850 KOA. Giants against the White Sox. Taylor, just roll through all the Giants home runs that we have. High drive. Right field. It is out of here. And the Giants lead 3-0. Now the pitch. He hits a high drive to right. Man, did he smoke it. This one is headed to Indiana. Goodbye. Hello, South Bend. And it is eight to three Giants. There's a swing, and there's a high drive to left. That's going to be a grand slam. Halfway up in the bleachers in left field, J.D. Davis got one of those softies, and uh, he crushed it. Yeah, the Giants crushed Lance Lynn and the White Sox with a bunch of home runs. The last two home run calls from John Miller and KNBR. The first one from Dwayne Kuyper. And Taylor, I don't know if you know this, but uh, every once in a while I hear from my friend Kuyper, and it's always a picture of a cow. He just texts me a picture of a cow <laughs> because we both love farms. I do know that you have that connection because he, he's talked about it before on the podcast, but that's very sweet that you guys text pictures of cows back and forth. Yep, except he texts me a picture of Holsteins because he knows that annoys me because we had jerseys. You're and a jersey, jersey guy. Everyone knows it. Yep. Blue Jays, Royals, the Blue Jays finishing off Kansas City. 1-0. Swinging a high fly ball, left center field. Get ready in the fountains. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has his second in KC. The Blue Jays win 6-3 for the Royals. They've scored a total of 17 runs so far this season. Half of those, by the way, against Jose Barrios. 
The Red Sox faced the Tigers. Chris Sale was okay, and then it was three all, top of the sixth inning. Adam Duvall to the plate. Two and two to Duvall. Swing and a drive high into left center field. Green back on it. At the track, at the wall. He looks up and it's gone. Two gloves. Adam Duvall hits a three-run homer. Yeah, that from 93.7 FM, WEI, Boston wins 6-3. couple of injury notes, Omar Narvaez went to the injured list, and Mets prospect Francisco Alvarez is set for a call-up to the big leagues. That was the Mets' plan going into spring training. Look, we're going to have Alvarez catch on a regular basis in the minor leagues, but if we get one of these two veterans hurt, then we'll uh, not hesitate to call him up, and Narvaez could be at eight to nine weeks with that calf strain. The Braves placed Colin McHugh on the injured list, and they recalled prospect Jared Schuster. Uh, McHugh uh, told reporters on Thursday that if this was late the regular season, this would probably be an issue that he would pitch through. But given that it's early, you know what? Might as well take care of business. Taylor, what else you got? Buster, a couple things to remote here. It is uh, officially NFL draft season as we are in April now. Uh, a couple podcast, yeah, I know. <laughs> a couple podcasts. If uh, you know you're scouting out what your team uh, needs and who they might draft, you could check out the first draft podcast with Mel Kiper Jr., Todd McShay, and Field Yates. You could check out the Mina Kime show featuring Lenny. Or there should be one more in here. The Dominique Foxworth Show, of course, which Sarah uh, produces on, spoke on. She created dating profiles for everyone on Monday, I believe. Great producing by Sarah over there. So check all those shows out wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com Buster. Just go to Indeed.com Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it. They won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. All aboard! It's the Rabbit Train with Carl Rabbit on Baseball Tonight. Carl Rabbit's play-by-play man on Sunday Night Baseball. And this weekend, Carl, you will be in Atlanta. We've got the Padres playing against the Atlanta Braves in the final game of a four-game series. This looks like the sort of series we could fast-forward to October and we could see these two teams button heads. Yeah, without question. I mean, um... You know, one team decided we're going to invest in everybody and sign them up for forever. And then there was another team that's just paying boatloads of money to superstars. I look at the Braves and think, okay, you have Riley continuing his ascension. Olsen had an MVP spring and he's following it up. And Ronald Acuna, who's an MVP guy, is now back and 100% healthy. There's three MVPs on that team. And then you go the other side and Machado is an MVP type player. We know that Tatis has the ability to do that, and we certainly have seen Soto and what he has done. Um, you know, they're 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 everywhere. This is a star-studded, a National League 
I think it's probably as star-studded a National League matchup as you can get, and that includes the Dodgers and the Phillies and the Mets. I think these two teams have the most star power of any in that league, and that league is loaded. So it kind of prompted a question when we were doing our preparation call yesterday. It got me to thinking about, uh, you know, with all the star power there, how many future Hall of Famers will be hmm. playing this weekend? Uh, and some of it you have to, of course, I, I think, uh, you know, there isn't a single player on either team where you would say if their career ended today, they would definitely right. be a Hall of right. Famer. But right. if you extrapolate what they've done so far early in their career, you consider the their age – there are a ton. <laughs> like, I think there's no doubt Manny Machado is going to be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. You agree? Yeah. Yes, I would agree with Manny Machado. I think that's right. And I think he's he's built up such a resume that there's not many more years he needs to click off. So, yes, I would say he was he is uh, the head and shoulder guy. There's no doubt. Juan Soto is on a Hall of Fame trajectory. Yes? It, it, yes, trajectory. And this is where this whole conversation is going to get interesting. Trajectory I mean, the other thing that's happened, Buster, in baseball, and you know this, so many players are playing at such a young age and making so much money. Does the question of how long they want to do this uh, and how how many numbers will they accumulate warrant a, a Hall of Fame career? Is that something that enters into the equation where guys say, I've, I've done it, I'm good, I'm not doing this for 20 years, or they don't want to be on the downside? Um, so. Yeah, sure. He's on that that trajectory. But again, how long does Juan Soto want to do this? Ronald Acuna Jr. I think he's pretty much in the same boat that Soto is. And he looks like it. And I had a long conversation with a source inside the the Braves organization yesterday who talked about how much better Acuna is moving this year. How last year he seemed almost afraid, tentative to, to chase fly balls. And now... The perception within the Braves organization is that, you know what, that WBC experience was great for him because he played center field and he was kind of running free and he showed up in spring and that explosiveness that we saw before he had the knee injury is back. So you agree, you know, Acuna probably on a Hall of Fame trajectory. Yes, and I think one of the comps you can use is just down the road from where we're going to be in Atlanta, of course, is Augusta, Georgia. And at least through this morning, as we're doing this now, Brooks Kepka is leading the Masters. He's coming off of two years in which he didn't really have a healthy knee. He now says he's 100% healthy. As I, as I said yesterday on a radio show, a lot of times when a player gets hurt, you, you tend to diminish their value because so many other guys do great things. Remember, Ronald Acuna is as athletically gifted as anybody in this sport. So when he is 100% healthy and at the age he's at, he, of course, is going to be on a Hall of Fame trajectory. He was on one before he got hurt. Now that he appears to be 100%, he, you know, it's not, like the, it's not like he's on a different track. He's back on the same track he, he was prior to the injury. So, sure, Ronald Acuna is one of the best players in Major League Baseball. And it's not, it's, there's no question about that. An interesting guy who's going to come into the Hall of Fame uh, discussion if he stays healthy is Austin Riley. You know, what you yeah, hear yep. about him within the organization is from every step of the way. You could go back to high yeah. school. This is what you hear from his old yep. high school coach, that he was someone yep. who, when he struggles, he kind of quietly processes it, he makes adjustments, and then he gets better. If you look year to year yep. to year, uh, his OPS, 750 his first year, 716, then 898, then 878. So far this year, Carl, 947. This is someone who finished seventh in the MVP race uh, two years ago, six last year, uh, and he's off to this phenomenal start. He's 26 years old. So right. you can see him building a hell yes. of a career. Yeah, and I, I probably have been more bullish on him than any other member of the Braves organization, including Acuna and Albies and Max Fried. I, I, I've always been of the mind that he has he has the most um, – I don't want to say potential because I don't think that's fair to Acuna. I just think he has as high a ceiling as anybody. And given, to your point, knowing what he was growing up and knowing how – there were some defensive deficiencies that's been addressed. He wanted to hit for more power. He figured that out. He also has that contract that, that lasts forever. So he's going to be in the place where he's most comfortable for a, right now, the longest time of any Brave. And 
he's surrounded by good players, if not great players, the team is going to succeed. And he's going to be, to me, he's the guy that carries them. He seems to have an amazing ability to stay on the field. He's huge. I mean, I know you, you've been around him. He, he's physically a huge guy. And if you think about other third basemen who are Hall of Famers, you can absolutely see him accumulating many of the same numbers over the course of this period because he is so strong, he's so big, and so determined to continue to get better. The contract screws with some guys' minds. It doesn't appear to be doing that at all with him. No. A 30-year-old Xander Bogarts. He would seem to be right now on a trajectory that take him to the fringe of the Hall of Fame conversation but he's in it. You know, he's 30 years old. He's got 1,419 hits because he started so young. Uh, you know, he's got, what, three, four all-star appearances. He's off to a phenomenal start this year. By all accounts, he seems really happy now that he's settled with the Reds, uh, with the uh, Padres. I could easily see him being a guy who winds up accumulating, say, 24, 2,500 hits and being in that Hall of Fame conversation. Right, and I'm pulling an Angel Reese because I'm pointing to the ring, which is something that he's got, and he may he may get more of those, and that's that's a big part of this deal. I think for years, Andrew Bogarts has been underappreciated globally, and I was guilty of that, especially early when it didn't appear as if he was hitting the ball. You know, exit velocity and barrel rate and hard hit rate became a became a thing. It's a statistic, you know, or statistics that we use to measure a player's ability to to square the ball up, to hit it hard, to have it jump off the bat. And, and I think over the course of his career, he's become a guy that hits the ball a lot harder. And uh, I'd have to look on his barrel rate and his exit velocity rate. But early on in his career, when he was really young, there, there were balls that would go off the wall or that would die in center field that he mashes now. Um, he's become the complete player, made an unbelievable defensive play last night in that game. Um, he, he is that, and, I and you know, I, I – I'm concerned a little bit for him because I think a lot of people either take it for granted or or don't put him in this shortstop class like we just had it. I mean, if you just take Turner, Dansby, and Xander and say, okay, like rank them in a Hall of Fame order, how do you do? How do you do that? How would you do that? Because I I think based on just their resume, Xander's number one yeah. on their resume. Yeah, he's number one. Yeah, no doubt. Right now, he would be number one. Uh, another guy is Matt Olson. You know, he just yeah. turned 29. He already, in the beginning of his career here, he's still early in his career, has seasons of 36 homers, 39 homers, 34 homers. Uh, he looks like someone, and by the end of his career, will surpass 400 career homers if he can stay healthy. Yep. Carl, his adjusted OPS is 132. Like, that is right in the middle of a group of Hall of Famers. If you look at guys who've already been voted in, and this is someone who is, he kind of reminds me of Anthony Rizzo, that as he gets older, he's making adjustments. He uh, seems to be getting more comfortable with how to get to a fastball. We're going to talk on Sunday night about these adjustments he's made with his stance, uh, with his setup. And now he's back in Atlanta, and he seems really happy. You could see him putting up huge numbers. Yeah, he's got more power than Anthony Rizzo. Uh, he's got a home run swing. Mm-hmm. He's living in the home he built even before he knew he was going to be on the Braves. Um, I guess the question would be, if you took Freddie Freeman and we had this conversation, Hall of Famer, Hall of Fame trajectory, continued this for another couple of years, he's a Hall of Famer. Can Matt Olson for the next five or six years reproduce the similar numbers that Freddie did, maybe more power? And less average, can he reproduce the same numbers? Because then we'll have this conversation in five years. If Freddie, in your opinion, and my opinion, is a surefire Hall of Famer, then Matt Olson is a Hall of Famer. Yep. And I think he's capable of doing those things. I think his defense is unbelievable. Um, and look, he, he's he's got this sort of way about him. You know, last year when he moved into that position replacing Freddie, they, they, it was uncomfortable for everybody. We, we did one of the first games where it was uncomfortable for everybody. And yet, sort of like, you know, a turtle shell with water hitting it. It, it kind of didn't it didn't seem to outwardly or even performance-wise eventually bother him, which is a, a tribute to who he is. So great numbers, Hall of Fame conversation. None of that's going to bother him. I, I, I'd see him as a, as a Hall of Fame player. 
Fernando Tatis Jr., uh, given his age, uh, he would normally be in a Hall of Fame trajectory. We know how, uh, you know, players who've been busted for PDs have been treated, yep. but he clearly has a, you know, long uh, career ahead of him where he's going to be a great player. Michael Harris, the second, finished first in the rookie of the year voting last year. He's really young. Who knows where that goes? Uh, Spencer Strider, you know, who knows where that goes? We can always tell the story, Carl, you and I, if he does make the Hall of Fame of bumping into him at the restaurant. In, uh, in San Diego early last year before anybody really knew who he was. And he dropped the line of the year on us saying that uh, given his mustache, he was going to reach out to Dylan Cease and tell him right. to cease and desist. So exactly. just so many great players we have this weekend. I'm, I'm uh, very excited about this this game because, as, as we mentioned, this could be uh, a preview of what we're going to see in October. Last Sunday, during the course of the broadcast, Bryce Harper uh, who's been so great with us in terms of wearing the microphone and joining the broadcast and talking with us, uh, threw on a headset in the Phillies dugout. And as he was talking, he made sort of this passing reference about the pitch clock to taking the game back for players. And uh, it was an interesting comment. What did you make of it when he said it? Well, that's, that's a good question. I, I made of it. I heard it. I looked at the guys in the booth. I'm like, you know, to a, to a degree. Did y'all hear that? And I got some sort of looks like there was some curiosity, like what 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 did he mean? I think I think maybe we knew what he meant, but nobody seemed wanting to jump right back in and and follow up on that. So we kind of let it float, and eventually, after another question or two, I said, "Look, I have to go back to that. I, I what did you mean when you said we want to? You know, me and me and some other guys are looking forward to taking the game back. We want to take the game back, and I I'm assuming because then he said. I forgot what I said. Like I'm not, I'm not going down that road. Um, I, I like Bryce a lot. He's a really smart guy. Uh, he he got out yep. there what he wanted to get out there. I'm getting the sense that he's not currently a fan of any of these rules, especially ones that require a hitter to get in the box and be engaged with eight seconds left. We witnessed one of the greatest, you know, man a man uh, postseason home runs in the history of the game off of his bat last year, there was all sorts of drama. He stepped out of the box. He took his time. Pitcher took his time. Um, so he was part of a seminal moment in Major League Baseball history, certainly Philadelphia Philly history. And maybe he looks back on it and says, like, that's not going to happen if these rules are in place. I'm not going to be able to mentally get there. That That's me speculating on his mindset. But I took from his comment was I, I'm not into the idea that you're you are dictating when I have to stand in the box. That's never been the way it is. I don't like it. I also think that when he suggests that we want to take the game back or we're going to take the game back, um, he's misguided. I think the majority of players that we talk to, and this is pitchers, this is hitters, this is relievers, it's 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 every manager. They like this. It's not going to go back. Um, maybe some modifications at some point, but right now, all systems go. Yeah, and Carl, after he said that, you know, I always, when when you hear something like that, I always, you know, think to double check myself because I have a group of people that I talk to, I go into a clubhouse and I'll talk to certain people. Uh, and I'm aware of the fact that, you know, given the fact that I have the job that I do, the same for you. Uh, that players might say something to us and it might be different, uh, you know, when, when we walk away and maybe they feel like, oh boy, I got to say, I like the pitch clock. I called a bunch of other people with other teams and said, hey, Bryce said this the other night. And by the way, he was heard. What he said was heard all around the sport. And I got back from so many people. No, that's not the sentiment in our clubhouse. Like most of our players love this thing. There are some guys adjusting, but generally speaking, our guys are on board yeah. with it. What you said is exactly right, Carl. I think, you know, it's a little bit like we talked about with the WBC, that the teams that are not thrilled with their players going off and playing the WBC, the players who aren't thrilled with these rules, guess what? Get over it. It's yeah. the, the, the train has left the station, Rabbi. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, that, and on the Rabbi train, I, I appreciate the, uh, the analogy there. When you heard that, was that your immediate thought? And then what would you have oh, done? No doubt. What would you have done in that situation? Yeah, no, I think you did the exact right thing. You followed up with a question, say, Bryce, what do you mean? 
He got his message out there. It was sort of a, you know, a drive-by. <laughs> it was a drive-by, and then he, he uh, you know, backed away from it, but he kind of made it clear. And as I say, he was heard, and a lot of people who, who respect Bryce were telling me, no, that's not how our guys feel. Right. So it'll be interesting as we go. I think, uh, you know, I heard on the Braves broadcast yesterday the, the note that there's been fewer than one pitch clock violation per game. There have been games like with you, Darvish, uh, with uh, Shohei Otani, where there have been multiple violations of those games, and there have been a lot of games where there haven't been any. Yeah, and so, you, know, you know one thing, too, I noticed um, in the Yankee game the other day, Garrett Cole and I think it was Trevino uh, were going back and forth where, you know, Trevino was pressing his pitch calm and Cole was doing this, and then he pressed it again and Cole went like that, and then again and Cole went like that, and then again, and then it, ultimately there was a pitch clock violation called against Cole. It ended up being ball four. Um, and then after the game, I thought the I thought what was so great um, was that Garrett Cole acknowledged like at that at that moment the pitch clock like was so far from my head I, I forgot about it like we, it's almost like you went back to last year no no I gotta I, got, I have time I gotta get to the right pitch and that pitch clock thing was just not ever entering his mind and I. Look, I thought it was great. I thought it was great the way that it played out, and then his acknowledgement. Because the truth is, we're probably going to see that situation where now the player or players is so locked into the at bat, what's going on, that the pitch clock, which has never been a thing until this year, is something they have to think about. I, I get it; They're- most of them are doing it, but that was a great, really good moment. Similar to when the umpire in spring training came up to you and said, "I screwed that up. It should have been a disengagement." And it should not have been called a ball or a strike. I thought it was great that Cole said, "Look, I, I literally I was being trans I was trans transposed back to where I once was. Like pitch clock, I, I've got to get the right pitch." I thought it was great. Yeah, uh, and Garrett, I was around him after one of his spring training outings, and and he was he fully owned everything with the pitch clock. Yeah, and the need for him to make adjustments and learn how to use the the pitchcom device he was going to try it out himself i love it and i think most players have dealt with this like that and they understand and you and i had that great conversation with Robbie Grossman of the Rangers lad the other day where he said you know what at the end of the year the players are going to appreciate the fact that they're off their feet an extra 25 or 30 minutes every night no, there's no doubt about it and booney was the booney was the first guy that came up with that idea look the other thing i know you asked me before we start one of the things you want to get to Eduardo Perez, I, I was on the MLB radio network this morning, said, what's the biggest takeaway from like week one? The biggest takeaway is so obvious, is that games now last two hours and 30 minutes. That's it. I mean, yep. you look at the box scores from like every game, 231, 237, 229. Like we are in such a, we are literally in a new world of Major League Baseball where games are played in two hours and 30 minutes. And it could be 13-3 or 7-6, but that's takeaway from Week one, two-hour and 30-minute games. All right, let's go rapid fire on a few other topics. Uh, a minor leaguer, AAA Sacramento pitcher Cade McClure, yeah. uh, sent out a tweet after there was a video highlight of Fernando Tatis Jr. hitting a home run off him, uh, and he referred to Tatis Jr. as a cheater who was playing in the game because of a steroid suspension. Uh, when I saw this, first off, I, I say to anyone, that's probably not the best moment to complain about cheating when you give up a home run on a right, meatball right, fastball. Right. But the other thing, I thought, you know what? What Cade McClure said really reflects what a lot of people feel like, uh, a lot of baseball fans feel like. Uh, a number of them uh, you know, are totally fine with Fernando Tatis Jr. coming back. And then there's a group of fans, there's a group of baseball writers who are never gonna give, going to forgive him for that. Yes. Of course. I mean, look, we've been around Alex Rodriguez uh, enough to know that no matter what ballpark he goes into, that's a conversation that's going to come up. Somebody's going to scream cheater when you're with Roger Clemens in the booth. Even in Houston, there are going to be people on social media who say he's a cheater. Like, why are you doing that? For the rest of Fernando Tatis's life, and <clears throat> this can go back to our Hall of Fame conversation, that's going to come up. It's on the resume. Uh, so, no. I wouldn't have done it. I don't think the timing of it was good at all, but it's 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 your right to say whatever the hell you want. You know, obviously we've seen that in this country. So his free speech is cheater. Okay. It doesn't phase doesn't phase me and and Tatis to his credit acknowledge like this this is gonna happen. So let's move on. 
And what Cade McClure said, I will say this, reflects the feeling of a lot of guys who have you know been in the minor leagues for a while. He's 27 years old. He's trying to get to the big leagues. And, and I'm sure he has a belief like, great, I'm swimming upstream against these guys who are making this choice. He has a right to be mad, yep. you know, feeling that way. Yep. All right. Uh, the Mets, a really rough series in Milwaukee that was finished off with this. And the pitch. A less than sterling start for this season for the New York Mets. That, of course, was the great voice of Bob Euchre, 620 WTMJ. Uh, Carl, you know, look, I think the Mets will be fine. They've got a lot of great players. They'll be in the race in the National League East this year. But the soft underbelly of this team, no question, is the age in the starting rotation to me. And the first time through the rotation, second time, you know, Max Scherzer with his uh, start the other day, giving a back-to-back-to-back home runs. Mm -hmm. That's that's the big question. You know, Justin Verlander starts on the I.L. Uh, Jose Quintana starts on the I.L. Max Scherzer, uh, you know, is a four. What did I say? A four, six, eight ERA last 10 starts. And uh, and then you got Carlos Carrasco. His fastball velocity is down. This is kind of built in when you're talking about the 2023 Mets. It is. But you did qualify it with for many of them. Starts on the I.L. Starts on the I.L. Starts on the I.L. means Eventually, assuming there's nothing really wrong, they come off the I.L. And I, I'm not going to judge the Mets on a week's worth of, uh, of results. I think Scherzer's going to be fine. I think Verlander comes back, and he was the Cy Young winner last year. I don't think there's any reason to think he won't be again. If, if, if he's telling us the truth and it was the playoffs, he would have pitched through this. Uh, you know, sometimes in an athletic competition, especially in a basketball game, when your team is down 12 and you make a shot or a dunk and you start dancing and the guy just goes like that. You know, he sort of says, look at the scoreboard. That's that's where I would be with the Mets saying, look, we've played seven, eight games. We have 162 of these things. I, I'm not I'm not going to run and, and worry right now about the New York Mets. So you go all Caitlin Clark, right? Look at the scoreboard. Exactly. 15, yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> uh, and last one, the Dodgers are off to a uh, really strong start. I remember during the offseason – uh, when we had everything going on with uh, the Padres, with signings, I talked to someone in the Dodgers organization. You know what? Everyone's going to pump up the Padres, and they're going to talk about how the Padres have overcome us, and we're going to do what we do, which is to have a bunch of pitchers who throw the ball in the strike zone and strike out a bunch of hitters, and we'll be fine. And I'm yeah. sure that's how they're feeling internally about their start. Yeah, look, uh, if Freddie Freeman said after last night, we're, we're a bunch of grinders. When you have that mentality and you have Hall of Fame players, <clears throat> you're not just a bunch of grinders. You're a bunch of Hall of Famers who grind, which make it even even more difficult. Dustin May is another one of those guys, Buster, that we talked about earlier, who's been hurt, who when he was on the mound last night and flashing 100 miles an hour, you're like, oh, yeah, they have that guy. Like the Dodgers are the team um that are when you look at them you're in my oh yeah that's right they have that guy oh oh he's on that team the dodgers are going to be fine the, the more dodger padres postseason series we have the better off we all are because of the geography because of what peter seidler said about the dragon it's game of thrones on a baseball field there's nothing better millions are going to watch it i, I i'm very excited about that the dodgers are not going anywhere they're, they're just not they're going to be great the series with the padres are going to be great um and anytime Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman put on the same uniform with Kershaw, I'm all in. I'm not going to pick against them. Yeah, the National League this year is just absolutely stacked, and it's, it's going to be fun. Yeah. And I'm sure that, uh, yeah. a lot of our games will be uh, with teams like the Braves and the Padres as we have this weekend. All right, Carl, uh, thanks for doing this, and I will see you over the weekend. Okay, Buzzer. Zero, zero, nine, this is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer for MLB.com. Sarah, how you doing on this Friday? I'm doing great. We have a ton of day games, atypical for a Friday, bunch of home openers, so I'm excited to get going. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Uh, it was also fun, this conversation that actually kicked off during our Zoom production call for Sunday Night Baseball yesterday when I just sort of posited the idea out loud, which I just talked about with Carl Ravitch, in this series between the Braves 
and the Padres, how many future Hall of Famers are there? So I'm going to give me a quick yes or no. Uh, and, and this is about projection. We acknowledge that. We're not saying that some of these players have built a Hall of Fame resume yet, but we think they're, uh, on their current trajectory could be in the Hall of Fame. Manny Machado, yes or no, Hall of Famer? Yes. Juan Soto, yes or no, Hall I of mean, Famer. I don't even need to answer that. Absolutely, yes. Ronald Acuna Jr.? Yes. Austin Riley? Yeah. Xander Bogarts? Yeah. Matt Olson? Yeah. All right. I I didn't uh, include Michael Harris II, Spencer Strider, uh, Max Fried. You know, there's some other guys maybe that I think are too early. Would you agree with me? Like, I'm not ready to put Michael Harris II into that, even though I think he's going to have a great career. I agree. Can I add another one? What about you, Darvish? He's not pitching in the series, but just part of the teams. I mean, the resume he has built in Japan and in uh, the United States with the Padres, the Rangers, the Dodgers. I mean, I think for a baseball life, he's getting there too. Uh, it's it's amazing. It's it kind of, I was thinking back to the 1971 All-Star Game, which to me is maybe the greatest All-Star Game ever. That was the one in Detroit where Reggie Jackson hit a ball onto the roof. And you go back and look at those lineups and the number of Hall of Famers in those, it's just incredible. And, and when you look at these two teams, uh, Padres and, and Braves, I think a lot of future Hall of Famers. All right, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is 13. So the Giants hit 13 home runs in their three-game series at the White Sox this week. That was tied for their most home runs in any three-game series in franchise history. They had a 1961 April series against the Braves where they hit 13. That was the series where Willie Mays hit his four-homer game. And I need to tell this personal story right here. My mother texts me about that four-homer game, you know, pretty often. I mean, it's Willie Mays, the greatest player of all time for her, and I think for me as well. And she always refers to it as the only one of his career, as if you would have expected him to have multiple four-homer games. Just so everybody knows, there have been 18 former games in MLB history, and nobody has had two. But I love the implication that you would expect Willie Mays to have two. Number two. Number two is 34. So Vlad Jr. this year has had 34 plate appearances. He has struck out once. That is... 10 more plate appearances than anyone else in baseball with one or zero strikeouts. He also leads the majors in hard-hit batted balls with 17, Just absolutely incredible. He is off to a great start. He's going to look like 2021 Vlad Jr., if not better, this year. Number one. Number one is six. So entering tonight, the Rays are the last undefeated team. They're 6-0. and But it's not just that. They're the first team since Taylor's 2016 Orioles to start at least 6-0. The Orioles that year were 7-0. But they've also won every game by at least four runs. That is the second longest streak of wins all by at least four runs to start a season. And I love when the team we're comparing to is before 1900. It's the 1884 St. Louis Maroons. They won each of their first 13 games, all by at least four runs. Just, I mean, I'm not sure the Rays can quite get there, but it's an amazing comparison. I think that team lost 19 games all year, so best of luck to Tampa in matching that. Yeah, uh, matching the Maroons. That's something to shoot for. I, I, I'm guessing that probably not many of the Rays players have heard about that team. All right, before we go, we got this Bleacher tweet uh, in reference to Juan Soto. Thomas Noel asks, okay, so we know how Sarah Langs feels about 
people criticizing Juan Soto's hitting, but is she willing to defend his trash defensive play? Looks like a DH to me. I'm so glad we we're talking today because even though the Padres lost last night, Juan Soto saved the game in the bottom of the eighth inning with a outstanding catch in left field. So I'm just going to mention that. Yes, I know maybe his defense isn't on the same Hall of Fame track as his hitting, but again, future Hall of Famer, that's all I'm talking about here. Right, and uh, there was another uh, player to whom he's compared uh, often in this Hall of Fame conversation who was not a good defensive outfielder. That would be Ted Williams. That would not be a bad career to have. All right, Sarah. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Buster. Can't wait for the game this weekend. This series is really, really great. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. The NFL schedule drops this week. And you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with Vivid Seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, and every eye-popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code BASEBALL. That's code BASEBALL. Download the app or visit VividSeats.com today. That's VividSeats.com. .com today, code baseball. Vivid Seats, experience it live. Jumping into the numbers. numbers. This is Himbo Knows on Baseball Tonight. Paul Ambikides, the forgotten one, is a researcher at ESPN. He's also the author of a new book. Uh, Hembo, if you can give some details on that and where people can find it. Yes, no, I appreciate the plug, Buster. The book is called Got Your Number. I uh, wrote and researched it with Greeny. The idea is pretty straightforward. We have 100 chapters, one through 100. We have written 100 essays. We have, in doing so, determined who owns every number in sports, one through 100. I actually did the math recently, and if you're listening to this uh, show, of course, you're a huge baseball fan. 20% of our book are baseball players. That's the second most common person or chapter in the book. There are 24 football players or 24 chapters associated with football players and 20 baseball chapters. So if you're a fan of this show, I think you are very likely to love it. If you're a fan of my work for some godforsaken reason (laughs) and you have not forgotten about me, you will also love it. And so I appreciate you giving us the opportunity to plug it here, Buster. Much more important than the Friday Good Morning America appearance that Greeny and I will be on. This, of course, is my first and foremost priority, and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to send the message. Yeah, and you walked right into my trap also because you acknowledge that you're a co-author of the book. And when I challenged Greeny on the radio show last week, he was like, no, 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 no. I am clearly the author of the book. I love the tension between the two of you. What is the truth there? And Greeny's not here to counter you. Look, I got to tell you, everybody, Greeny did a really nice job of rearranging and copy pasting the contents of all of my emails. He did a wonderful job <laughs> in doing that. No, of course. No, the, the, the message here, Buster, is truthfully um, his words, my numbers and the combination thereof has really produced something for which we are exceedingly proud. What I learned very early on in the process was that if I just sent him a, like a long list of statistics and information, the things for which I thought were most gripping about each of these athletes, you wound up weaving in a really, really nice narrative. So all of the essays are, I don't know, between four and 600 words, kind of bite-sized, very snackable, jam-packed, very dense with the stats that you have come to know and love, or at least know from me. <laughs> yeah, and as I said on the radio show last week, his name on the cover of the book is like 60-point type. 
it's a major headline, like when World War II broke out and your name is just like in small print right below it. I, yes. What was the conversation about that? Yeah, his his reads Dewey uh, beats Truman or whatever it was. And my footnote is like the thing that you see at the end of like a pharmaceutical commercial for Flonase, right? It's like, oh, by the way, this might happen. This might happen. This might happen. This might happen. So that was a very good joke. And the fact that it's like yellow writing makes it even all that more obnoxious. Mike Greenberg. And he defended it. I don't I can't believe he defended that. Yes. Well, I mean, would you suspect anything else from our good friend, Mike Greenberg? Of course not. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's get to uh, this week's notes. And we'll start with this. Uh, I know Taylor has a uh, bleacher tweet for you about your beloved Phillies who have not started this season well. Well, I don't have the bleacher tweet in front of me. That's bad producing on my part. Hembo, clearly the superior producer on this podcast right now. But uh, Debbie Gammons-Brown wrote in. She just wants to know what's going on with the Phillies uh, through the first couple games of the season. Yes, the, the idea of being basically, you know, panic or patience. That, that's kind of the, the the question right now that I'm asking myself because as a fan of the team, it's, it's really easy to watch all of these games candidly and freak out. And you, you know what I don't like, Buster? I don't like using the hashtag small sample size to walk myself off a ledge here because that's too reductive in our analysis. This is the only sample size that we have. So let's react to the sample size that we do have. I'm not worried about this team starting rotation. I think they had the horses to ultimately be one of the very best in the National League as they were last year. I'm not worried about the lineup either. I think the Phillies are going to score a lot of runs like they did last year. And sooner than later, Bryce Harper will come back in the middle of the lineup and be awesome. I am, however, exceedingly worried about the bullpen. And it is not too early to worry about the bullpen. Because right now, front to back, this is a bullpen buster that has a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff. But there is very little command. Like the stuff is big in yellow, you know, bold type, like Mike Greenberg. The stuff really, uh, really yeah, the command really, really, really small, like Paul Hebakitis. I am not at all convinced that this is going to be a bullpen that shoves this season. Gregory Soto can't throw strikes. Craig Kimbrell, frankly, can't throw strikes. Those were the two big additions. And right now, the numbers are astonishing. Again, it's only one week, but it is the only week that we have. The Phillies bullpen has inherited 15 runners. 12 of them have scored. (laughs) The Phillies bullpen has faced 108 batters. 46 of them have reached base. That should not be a 50-50 proposition. Again, we're talking about one week. But I am not at all a fan of the bullpen that we have assembled here. And for especially when you consider how much they gave up for Gregory Soto, that is, right, right now, in my fandom, he is persona non grata. I need to see that thing flip around in a hurry. I kind of like it, a bullpen to, like, your special teams. It, it's not necessarily going to be the reason why you can't, you know, achieve your success or reach the top of the mountain, but it is often how you win and lose in the margins and over the course of time, that definitely adds up. Just ask a Phillies fan. Yeah, I, uh, you know, walked away because, of course, we had the the Phillies on Sunday Night Baseball against the Rangers, so I got an up-close and personal look at them. Um, What I saw reinforced my question. I was surprised they signed Craig Kimbrell. That, that to me, was a, you know, we know Dave Dombrowski traded for him when he was with the Red Sox. But you know what? He's a different Craig Kimbrell now. He's later in his career. Did you, did you share my surprise on that first point? Absolutely, especially when you consider the fact that baseball is different now. Walks are up because this pitch timer is throwing off everybody. That's not the kind of relief pitcher that you want now. The, the, the bullpens that are going to be most successful this season are the bullpens that can come in and extinguish fires by throwing strikes. You're coming in with guys on base that are going to be running around like jackrabbits. You have to have guys that can command the baseball. The Phillies have plenty of stuff. They're going to strike out a lot of people. But those numbers are astonishing. 46, the Phillies bullpen in six games has allowed 46 runners to reach base. Like that's an absurd number. That's astonishing. So the Craig Kimbrell signing was one I did not like. I did not like how much they gave up for Matt Veerling. There's pl- like I said, there's plenty of stuff in that bullpen. It's too early to worry about the starters. It's too worry, too early to worry about the lineup. It is not too early to worry about the Phillies bullpen. Yeah, Aaron Nola. Uh, clearly one of those uh, players who's affected by the pitch clock. They've acknowledged that, which is why they worked on it between starts. So you would assume at some point, you know, he'll be able to make the adjustment. And it was fascinating on Sunday night to see Bruce Bochy absolutely exploit the fact that they uh, don't have a right-handed hitting center fielder. And to me, if you're in the Phillies position now, after watching Christian Pache, who they just traded for, take those plate appearances against the Rangers. I'm like, nope. You commit the at-bats to Brandon Marsh and hope that he hits better against lefties, or you go and get uh, someone to essentially replace Matt Verley. Am I wrong? 
No, you're definitely not wrong. And this is why, well, this is part of the reason why I didn't want the Phillies to trade a potential 30 home run catcher in Logan O'Hoppy for Brandon Marsh. Like, let's think about the stuff that matters here, right, guys? Okay. Like, this is, I understand, like, stand the idea of what Dave Dombrowski was doing in that case. But if you already have to trade for Christian Pache six months after you just traded for Brandon Marsh, what does that say about the trade that you make? Logan O'Hoppy already broke camp. He was their opening day catcher for the Angels. He's already got a couple bombs. Like, uh, Look, the, the Phillies were two wins away from winning the World Series last year. So, so, so you're asking someone that's talking like my team just lost 100 games. But if you think about some of these moves that the Phillies have made, this has always been my concern about Dombrowski. Think big picture. Think long term. Let's not think about right now. And let's not use like a, the, the, the track records necessarily the same way. Let's be a little bit more predictive in our analysis as to what we should expect from players. I didn't like it with Kimbrell. I didn't like it with Marsh. I hope I'm wrong about these things. But so far, not so good. All right. Uh, some of the notes you sent me, you say baseball is fielding a 21st century product. Yeah. So it's, it's no secret that our attention spans have shrunk, right? We all have smartphones. But until the pitch clock, society was running fast in one direction and baseball was slowing down in its direction. So here are the numbers. The average nine inning game this season, two hours and 36 minutes. We're going to be updating this throughout the year. It's a 27-minute year-over-year reduction. That's a lot of time. But what I think is a lot more important than merely time of game buster is pace of play, the frequency with which something happens. So the average game, again, 156 minutes this year, the average number of balls in play in a game is 48. So what does that mean? It means that the ball is in play once every three minutes and 13 seconds to be precise. That figure was more than four minutes once in every four minutes as recently as two years ago. This year's average would be the fastest or quickest since 2008, 2007, 2008. That was the time in which baseball's attendance was at an all-time high. So you might not like it, but candidly, you're probably going to be in the minority if you feel that way. And I think by, I don't know, let's say the all-star break, most of most baseball fans around the country will have been converted to the pitch clock, not only because you save half an hour every day, but because what happens from bell to bell, what happens in between is a lot more frequent than it used to be. Yeah, I talked about how the adjustment needs to be made by the players and the umpires and also the fans. I think they're going to, you know, and I, I think if you're someone who's watched baseball your whole life uh, and you're not necessarily a fan of the pitch clock now, you will adapt. Uh, you write that being single is cool again. I know yes, what this is about. Yeah, who would have thought being single is cool again? So the, the average game thus far has included about 11 singles. That will be the highest rate in the season in five years percentage of balls in play that are singles would be the highest rate in a season in six years for whatever it's worth. But the most interesting element about this to me is the collective change in approach, specifically among left-handed hitters. I think you'll find this fascinating. So what I did, Buster, was I looked at launch angles for both righties and lefties in comparison to past years. Righties, completely steady. Lefties have league-wide reduced their average launch angle, and that number is even more pronounced with two strikes. We talked all offseason. What would individual players do? What uh, these left-handed hitters do now that they're living in a, in a world in which the shift is abolished? I thought that you would see a number of sort of anecdotal changes for people individually, but not a league-wide trend. And again, we only have one week. But the fact that we do already have a league-wide trend in terms of launch angle, and which I think is directly a, a tied to approach, is also proof positive that the shift and the banishment of the shift is also working, as evidenced by the fact that hitters have already changed their approach. It only took one week. We are already seeing the numbers to demonstrate that. I got to tell you, watching the games and, you know, situations where there's a runner at first base and the second baseman is close to the bag because they're trying to, you know, set up a potential double play or be in a position for a potential double play. It is, uh, you're reminded how big that hole is between first base holding the runner and the second baseman near second base, and I think you're right. And I've seen left-handed hitters take, uh, you know, takes his shot, take shots at that hole constantly. Uh, and uh, you write that a star catcher is your ticket to ride. What's that about? It's, I think I need a month or maybe even two before I can turn in my entire thesis to you. But, but here's my going theory. Tell me if you're buying this. So we're operating in this ecosystem right now. Umpires are still calling balls and strikes. We do not have robo-umps yet, which means that pitch framing is as important as it ever was. We are also living in a world in which stolen bases are way up 
Right now, we're operating at an 81% clip, which would be the highest rate ever. I don't know that it's going to stay above 80, but even if it hovers around that figure, you're going to see the draw total naturally increase because the ease with which you can steal is obviously so much easier. So let's think about this. I'll use two players as, a, as our examples. JT Realmuto, who has gunned down 40% of would-be base dealers as a Philly. Adley Rutschman, who's a 1-9 pop guy. This year, the Orioles have already stolen 10 more bases than their opponent. Here's what I'm getting at. You've written in the past about the value that Yadier Molina provided the Cardinals over the years in terms of controlling the running game, looking at the differential between how many stolen bases on average the Cardinals would allow in relation to everyone else. And the massive difference between the two, with him being the common denominator, means what he is providing behind the plate cannot possibly be quantified in war, in wins above replacement. So let's think about Real Muto and think about Rutschman. If you can control the running game like that, or even close to that, and you can also bop 20 homers, 30 homers, block, frame, run. Who could possibly be more valuable than that? Could we be living in a world in which we have a couple catchers win the MVP this year? I think the door is wide open. Until we have robotic gums, if you have a star catcher, you have the chance to provide your team more value in relation to you know, other teams in your league than any time in baseball history. If stolen bases are going to be this easy and you have a guy that can suppress that, that buster is your ticket to ride. Well, and I must say, based on what I'm hearing, I don't think we're close to having robotic umpires 100% across the board. I do think we're probably headed toward a challenge system time, sometime in the next few years. All right, Hembo, uh, when you do the book signings with Greeny, when you're on GMA with Greeny, make sure just two hands in the middle of his back and shove him out of the way and say <laughs> more of me. No, I'm going to be the one sitting in between he and uh, Robin Roberts with my hands shaking in my lap. That's going to be how you'll see me. <laughs> Hembo, thanks for doing this. Later, friends. Get out of here, Hembo. Sick of Hembo. Bleacher tweets. Alrighty, Buster. Bleacher tweets for a Friday. No, we're not doing Bleacher tweets right off the bat. We got the weekly Taylor rant. <sighs> a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. And I got to say, we got a couple tweets. Uh, one from Justin Hurdle, you know, saying, like, don't overdo the rant. So I won't, you know. Unless something's truly firing up, I, you know, I'll, I'll, we'll see where my emotions lie here. Um, so well, we got to lead off with this, though, Buster. You, you mentioned in the last podcast. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. And Buster, so we're going to talk Oakland Athletics today. Um, I didn't intend to really go at another owner, but we got a bleacher tweet earlier in the week from Evan C. Uh, highlighting the fact that there were only 3,000 people at the Coliseum for a game between the Guardians and the A's. Uh, Jose Ramirez went off. And we had a good laugh about it. You know, that was that was funny at the time. But uh, I saw this tweet going around from J.J. Cooper, editor-in-chief of Baseball America. It read, of the 13 AAA games Yesterday, 11 drew more fans than the Oakland A's announced attendance of 3,407. Four more than doubled the A's attendance. Wow. So it's 11, 11 AAA games and four of them doubled that number, which is it just blew me away. And honestly, it made me think about what a bummer the situation in Oakland is right now. This is a team that won like 90 games a couple of years ago. And, you know, they're playing well right now. But this is a franchise and a fan base that are languishing as this stadium thing drags on. The A's are only spending 43 million on payroll this year. That's 120 million below the league average, which is just a, a huge, huge cliff there. Um, so, you know, not spending a ton of money. That's been a the long been the MO of the athletics. And so it's not super surprising behavior. And when it's peak Billy Bean Moneyball, it's awesome. But when it's not, it's a degrading experience. And, and then the A's owner, John Fisher, who's like the reverse Peter Angelos here, he barely exists in real life. I mean, his his own employees at one point were like, we don't we've never seen the guy. I, I don't know if he exists or not. And so we you know, this has been covered extensively on the podcast and in the, in the greater baseball world. But he's working two angles here um, for life after the Coliseum. He's pursuing the Howard Terminal site in Oakland or just straight up moving the team to Las Vegas. Not great. Um, and apparently, I didn't know anything about this until I was doing some half-assed internet research last night, but the Howard Terminal is apparently a working port in Oakland, and if the stadium and the surrounding development were built there, it would be next to a metal shredding plant, 
And this is a business that the Ace actually tried to shut down. How sweet of John Fisher. Uh, you know, took it, you know, <laughs> tried to litigate them into the ground, uh, you know, appealed every case all the way up to the California Supreme Court. And the California Supreme Court, along with many other courts along the way, sided with Schnitzer Steel Industries. And, you know, I, I, I got to thinking, like, how lame is that? John Fisher is so desperate to overcharge for condos in Howard Terminal that he tried to run off a longtime manufacturing business so it potentially, potentially doesn't blight this delicious cash cow he's been dreaming about. This thing is not done. It may never happen. And he tried to run this business out of town. I mean, what if he was able to run them off and then nothing came to fruition? Like, how gross and slimy and just like... Like, what are you doing, man? Like, what a disconnect from the community that you are also running a business in. And the hang-up in Oakland seems to be how the infrastructure will be paid for. Shocker, John Fisher doesn't want to pay for any of it. So while he's pursuing that, he's also hired lobbyists in Nevada trying to scoop up public funds for a stadium in Las Vegas. This this whole thing's been going on forever, ever, ever. And so John Fisher has punted on the product in the field. He's long punted on the facilities. You know, the famous story of the, the sewage running through the dugout. Um, and I know this is a business for these guys and his business is, you know, he would say, oh, my business is in limbo. You know, we're looking for a new home here. But a big part of these, the value of these businesses is the cultural cachet, you know, providing a social center for the community. You have the devotion of your customer base. And when you put the fans and the team in limbo like this, while you're begging for the government to give you hundreds of millions of dollars in tax, taxpayer money, like, you lose those things. And that's very important. You know, I'm, I've seen with the commanders in the DC area, like Dan Snyder has run such a poor franchise that the government officials refuse to deal with them. He has to sell the team because of it. And, and I don't know a ton about these negotiations, um, but it doesn't seem like he has a lot of leverage right now. So, you know, he could open up his checkbook a little bit wider. That doesn't seem likely though, but this whole thing is very icky and very sad. And the handling the whole thing has been atrocious. So I just want to say, I feel bad for athletics fans, you know, to all our friends out in Oakland, we, we see you, we feel your pain. Um, that was what was grinding my gears at about, uh, 12, 15 AM last night. It's just, it's just a bummer, man. A proud franchise. Just, I mean, he's literally like, it's like a plant he left out to dry in the sun. And you know, if, if the, his neighbor pays for the water, he, he might, he might give it a little drop, but, uh, seemingly unlikely at this point. So, uh, the interesting thing about when we should say, get this on the record, I've had conversations with Billy Bean about tanking, you know, in the past, a decade ago. And he hated it. Like, he hated the idea <laughs> yeah. of what some of the other teams are doing. And they consistently built competitive teams and flipped. You know, they did trade stars. It's not like they ever built a huge payroll. But Billy would trade guys like Tim Hudson and Mark Mulder, and he would get the team turned around, and they would compete. What they're doing the last two years is completely different. And what's awful about this situation now is that you have the A's not trying to compete, barring on the credibility of other teams. And by the way, John Fisher is making tons of money this year. Oh, yeah. They've got the you know the, the revenues from Central Baseball. And we can call it John Fisher. I'm going to call it the other owners. Because this practice mm-hmm. of tanking has been going on a decade. And it's kind of a joke that the owners themselves haven't dealt with it. And go to someone like this and say, look, if you don't want to compete in, in, this, uh, in our business, if you don't want to help aug- augment our business – then you need to sell the team. We're going to find somebody else because we can find somebody else to come in and do a better job than you are. All right. I like that. Uh, one question for you, Sarah. Uh, are, are you, do you know that, that that is from the movie Network, that rant that we heard? Uh, that was actually an anchor in the movie live on air going on that rant. Does that compel you at all to go back and watch that movie? I'm going to be honest. I've never seen Network. And when you were talking about network, I my mind went to the social network, which is a great film also, but I will be watching it now so I can get more context. I'll do my homework. Very nice. All right, let's uh, go through the Bleacher Tweets, Taylor. All right, let's rattle through these here. First up, we've got Ryan Mayer at rmayer151. He writes in, do you see Major League Baseball going back to limiting the interleague play schedule once each league has an even 16 teams? No. I think they want these teams to continue to have more of a balanced schedule and not to go heavily on one league or the other. 
Mar at the Mar writes in small sample size overreactions, blah, blah, blah. Corbin Burns has a 9.54 ERA walks and runs are up while strikeouts are down. Is something physically wrong? Is he trying to settle in or should we would should we be worried? It is a stark contrast from his regular form. It's a great question. I, I, you know, we'll see. I think it is small sample size early in the year. P.K. Steinberg up next. I get that weather is unpredictable, but preemptively canceling games is just dumb. What happened to the good old ownership greed when they take tickets, take your money, and risk the rain delay? I love P.K. You know, (laughs) I I, I love P.K. I like it when owners preemptively cancel games because they want better conditions for the fans, and they don't want to have the fans sit in the stands for two hours, three hours. There are some owners who will do that. Probably Oakland, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but not uh, you know not but some of the more progressive owners. Zach Beeson at Zach Beeson Beeson twenty two writes in Logan Ohapi leads American League catchers and OPS home runs and RBIs. Would the Angels really bench him when Max Stasi returns? How about Hembo with a rant about that trade for Brandon Marsh? <laughs> uh, he heard. He's yeah. not happy yeah. about that trade. Uh, I suspect that uh, given the Angels are trying to win this year, whoever's playing the best is going to play. Matthew Porto at 30-year-old Mulberry writes, and I've been loving the Forgotten Fields. Parks need to revive the medieval-style towers and parapets, right? I can't believe these fell out of fashion. I, for one, would like to feel like I'm at a King's jousting tournament when I go to a ball game. (laughs) I know. Todd's been doing a great job with these. Q-Dub at Q-Dub 5-1 writes, and given the new pitch clock rules, are umpires now compelled to honor a batter's request for timeout, whereas in the past they did not have to grant such a request? Uh, I, I guess they are. Can you imagine if, if you just had an umpire say, you know what, I'm not going to grant time. Sorry. You know, I know the hitters, uh, you know, in theory is granted one timeout per plate appearance. But no, I'm not going to do that. I think we'd see some more ejections. Last one for the week. Drew Benson at Summer Guy 811 writes, and have you seen the pitch clock, pitch clock affecting manager decisions on getting relievers warmed up in the bullpen? It seems like when a guy gets in trouble, there's a lot less time to get that reliever ready before the inning spirals out of control. A hundred percent. The other day when we had the Rangers on Sunday Night Baseball, Bruce Bochy talked about that, about how uh, with the pitch clock, everything speeds up a little bit for him. And this is someone who probably will go down as being one of the best managers of bullpens ever. And he feels it. He feels what you're talking about there, Drew. Alrighty, that's it for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter while you're watching games this weekend. Thanks for writing in, everyone. That's it for today. My thanks to Ravi, Sarah, Hembo, Sarah, and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day.